ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Moxie Bets. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Kate Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Bets. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name's Abby Wambach, and my dilemma is that my beautiful family refuses to hose the food scraps from their plates down the sink. So those scraps, they dry up and then, you know, we've got one of those like cages on top of the, the, the sink or the, that drying rack. So they just, it just, it just dries and it stays there for days or actually until I clean it. And I just, it's a dilemma. I keep telling them that this thing bothers me and nothing changes. Sarah, help me with this. I don't know what the hell to do. Okay, so number one, let me just start by saying my husband is a wonderful helper around the house, doesn't need to be asked to do stuff, dishes, laundry, dog poop, whatever. So I would say that overall, he's crushing the whole being considerate spouse thing. But he does have this one kind of cereal. It's Whole Foods uh, honey flakes and oat clusters or something. It's delicious, by the way. But when a leftover flake or cluster sits in milk, it cements itself to the bowl like with the strength of eons old magma uh so if this thing sits in the sink for a day two days before it gets rinsed i have to use a knife like an ice chipper on those suckers Uh, so i get where you're coming from with the food thing um and i think there are two solutions one sit the family down and you explain just how important this seemingly meaningless thing is to you it might seem like nothing to them But when they don't do it, despite being told over and over again, it makes you feel genuinely hurt. Makes you feel like they don't respect you enough to care to do this very simple thing. Hopefully that does it. But, like the many times I've asked my husband to pull the blackout shades with the left one covering the right one so that no crack of light gets through, instead of the right one covering the left one and a tiny sliver of light directly beams into my eyes when the sun comes up. Yeah, as much as they love you, they may just never care enough to get it right. So, solution two is, of course, give it up. Protect yourself. Decide that there are other battles worth fighting and begrudgingly handle the food remains. Be grateful for all the other ways that they do listen and care and take care of you. Godspeed. That's what she said. I'm so pumped to welcome back Abby Wambach to the pod. And by the way, if you're always asking yourself, is it Abby Wambach or Wambach? Well, just consider that she didn't make a career as one of the greatest backs of all time. She was a forward. So not a Wambach, a Wambach. Anyway, we talked about a lot of things uh, that we never got to get to when she joined the podcast with her wife, Glennon Doyle. Uh, We talked about her growing up in a big family, how she reflects on big decisions that she made, you know, back in her soccer days and the great perspective that she now has on the past. She has this thing, trends and forces, and it's a perspective that I'm 
definitely going to remember going forward. And I think that you'll benefit from too. Uh, we talk women's sports, Title IX, societal conditioning that we have to unlearn, Red Stars, Angel City, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and how her life really pivoted post-soccer after meeting Glennon. Loved this conversation. Now, I want to point out that we did record this before Friday's Supreme Court announcement. Uh, and I know that the conversation would have been different if we had known that Roe v. Wade had been struck down. Not only that, but if we had known that Clarence Thomas would file a concurring opinion that the court should consider past rulings uh, to contraception access, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, I guarantee you our conversation would have been different. And I imagine in the future, Abby and I will be in some rooms together talking about those things and being furious that we're fighting those fights all over again, furious that our rights are being taken away by judges that were appointed by popular vote losing presidents and a stolen Supreme Court seat, rejecting and denying the people's will and the majority views of this country. But that is a conversation for another time. And honestly, it's not really one that I'm prepared to have just yet, uh, despite being someone who kind of feels like she's always got the words for everything. I am truly at a loss right now. And I know that soon enough, I'm going to have to find something to say, find some way to navigate what feels like an absolutely terrifying reality in which none of the settled law that I've known all my life is secure, in which the highest court in the land is rolling back rights, not fighting for more equality. But I'm not there yet. I'm too sad. I'm too broken. I'm too scared. I'm too angry. I'm too crushed by... The reminder that human beings cannot lead with love for all of our differences. Uh, and so for now, hopefully this convo with Abby Wambach will entertain and inform and inspire. She is on the front lines fighting for all the right things. And as I say all the time, her podcast, We Can Do Hard Things with Glennon and Glennon's sister Amanda, is truly a beacon of light in hard, uh, and dark times. It's truly a place where you will... Go to get better and learn more about yourself and others. I really urge you to use it when you need it. Um, so for now, here's my conversation with Abby Wambach. I'm so excited to get to talk to you because though we have spoken alongside each other at things and we have spoken on my radio show about stuff and you and Glennon have come on the podcast together, you and your lovely wife, um, you and I have not gotten to do the the dig into the, the Abby Wambach of the childhood, of college, of career of post-career, all of it. So we're going to get into it. And I'm somehow going to manage to squeeze this into the time that we have. Um, so we might have to skip over some important stuff. Like, I don't know, uh, your 18 billion awards and such. <laughs> um, but let's go back. Let's go back to outside Rochester, which is uh, an area I'm familiar with being a Cornellian and knowing upstate New York. You grew up in upstate New York, uh, youngest of seven. Mm -hmm. I feel like sports were almost required because that's like a team. Yeah. You just have a team in your house at all times. That's right. I was basically born into a team environment, dealing with locker room politics throughout the whole of my life, um, <laughs> understanding on a deep level that your personal feelings might not matter as much as the whole, as the group, as the collective. Um, and all of my brothers and sisters were very athletic. So that kind of paved a way for me to just try a lot of things out. I'm actually pretty good at most sports. Um, I'm not a very good swimmer. That's one that I haven't really um, tackled, but 
I just watched them. You know, I was like the the ultimate observer when I was a baby, when I was being like carried and carted around Rochester from sporting event to sporting event to and my mom, you know, having seven kids, she had to manage all of this. So she'd go to like two innings of a baseball game and then pick me up <laughs> and my dad and her would like flop and switch, you know, they'd like high five in the middle and they'd switch games or like go to a different <laughs> field. So yeah, that was kind of like my upbringing. I, um, I was the youngest and still am. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, what's crazy is I hadn't thought of it in that sense of like, if there are seven of you, and you're the youngest, so there's always going to be that number. You never got to experience what it is to get what you want. It's always going to be, well, this is what you want. Unfortunately, we don't have time. Or more people voted for this. Or when when it's seven, like it's a constant negotiation of like, when am I going to fight for this? And when am I just going to accept that like, yeah, I guess when there's this many of us, I don't get to It's choose. so true. It's I love that you put it that way because, you know, there's some some wicked hard things about being in a big family, especially for me. Um, you know, all of my brothers and sisters, they would argue that I got the most attention out of all of them. Um, of course, yeah. being the baby, <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's just only so much attention two adults can spread around to seven human beings. Right. So my eldest sister, Beth and Laura, they, the two oldest in the family, they actually in many ways, I was like their real life baby doll, you know, like they helped raise me in many ways. Um, and, you know, I just think that it, it, it makes a lot of sense at why now in my family, uh, that my stuff matters to me a lot, a lot more than I think it matters <laughs> to most people. So when I put something down somewhere or, you know, I have my clothes in my closet, like my kids, they raid my closets, you know, and they at some point had like the decency to ask permission before. Now it's just free for all. <laughs> They're just, I, I just see them walking right. about the streets with like, you know, my nice sweatshirt <laughs> that I just purchased that's brand spanking new. And when you're the youngest of ooh, seven ooh. kids, you've been wearing hand-me-downs your whole life. The amount of hand-me-down socks those gross old I school bet. socks oh that like God. lost the elasticity <laughs> around the ankle. You know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? Like now socks are so much yep. better. They're engineered better. And I'm just, I'm very particular about my stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I might have to go to therapy. That totally that. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Okay. Quick sibling quiz. How many brothers and sisters? So there's two of oldest each. sisters, four brothers, and then me. So three girls and four boys. Wow. Okay. Are any of them, did they also play college sports? Yeah. So the girls all played college sports. My, my sister Beth played basketball at Harvard. So, uh, go crimson. What the hell are they called? I don't even know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, you played That's against right. them. Did you play, did you play college sports? Yeah. Which you, did you play uh, track and field? Hockey? Yeah. Track and field. Okay. Uh, field hockey and basketball in high school and then uh, just That's track right. and, okay. in college. Um, and then my sister yeah. Laura played soccer at Xavier University in just outside of Cincinnati. Nice. Yeah. So they're the ones that kind of okay. paved the way for me. Yeah. Any other queer siblings as far as My you sister know? Laura. Yes. Yep. Okay. Did she come out before you or simultaneously? It's actually really or? a cute story. I came out to her and then she... She goes, you know what, uh, can I tell you my story? And I'm like, sure. And so she came out to me and, you know, 
I just am so lucky um, to have had that experience with her because I was 22. She's 10 years older than me. Um, she still lives in Rochester. Hi, Laura. And um, it's just, it, it just an, it was an incredible moment um, for me because for, for most of my life, I was, for, from my family's perspective, um, they didn't really, I didn't tell them about my sexuality. And um, I grew up in a Catholic family and went to Catholic schools. And so that comes with, with its own set of traumas. But I was always really nervous about that. So it was actually really awesome that. Um, yeah. Well, and when you do have a very religious family, to have someone else in the family that helps you navigate those conversations and relationships with your with your family members and the church and right. everything else. Um, all right. So sports, I know you played basketball and soccer. I mean, it's crazy. If you read your your resume, the awards are coming fast and furious from the very beginning. Like it was very clear you were sort of this soccer prodigy and meant meant to do great things. You go on to uh, University of Florida and uh, as a freshman, you helped them to their first ever national championship. You beat the uh, the uh, Tar Heels, yes. who are sort of like the the, the soccer royalty at the collegiate level. Yes. Um, throughout all of that, how much did you recognize the gift of participation? Because you're in the new 37 Words Title IX documentary. And over the last month, talking about doing panels, watching docs, reading about, I have really changed my perspective on Title IX and how different my life would have been. I've always said that, but I think I really get it now. Yeah. Um, were you aware as you were growing up, all the sports that made up your life, uh, that that was not the norm uh, just a couple decades earlier? No, um, I didn't know any of that. I, I was aware there, there was an understanding that, you know, all the boys football teams and all the boys teams got more money got more attention. They got the preference of field times, practice times when I was like in high school. Uh, but it wasn't until I got uh, not only to the national team, but but University of Florida specifically, um, because it was told to me when I was at school there that they, you know, in order to become compliant to this new law, well, not new, to the law that went into effect in 72, mind you, this is in 1998 when I first showed up at University of Florida, this is tw almost mm -hmm. 25 years later where universities and public institutions were being held accountable for this law. Right. And so the women's soccer program was started in 1994. Uh, and I happened to decide to go there, um, in 1998. And the reason why our women's soccer programs was started was so that university of Florida could become compliant to the title IX law. And yeah. I did a lot yeah. of like feeling about that at the time. And then when I got to the national team, then, you know, I, I'm sitting at tables with Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm and we're, we're having these real conversations about it. So when I was at Florida, I didn't really know really how big of a deal that was, how title nine directly impacted my specific life. Um, and you know, when I, when you come from a big football school and a big successful basketball program, like University of Florida, they have lots of money, right? And so they were being forced to treat us very similarly to the men's programs. And that was a big reason why I decided to go there. You know, they had, for my yeah. first couple of years, they had a private plane that would, that would take us to like, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma to play, you know, in the, in wow. the Southeast conference. Um, and, and, 
I don't know, I guess maybe I was more bougie, bougie before I knew it. Back then. <laughs> um, yeah, that mattered yeah. to me. You know, it mattered to me to feel like I was going to be in a place that could help me become a professional athlete because I knew that that was going to be probably the road that I, I went down. Yeah, it's interesting. You hear about 72 and you think, oh, okay, so anyone who came after Title IX um, has been in this in this space. But it really wasn't until addendums in the 90s forced more compliance. Yeah. And still, as I talked about in a recent podcast, 87% of universities still don't have proportionate school sports opportunities to the women compared to their enrollment. There are other quote unquote prongs that they allege to be in compliance with, but really enforcement is terrible, even 50 years later. So you can imagine that those of us who grew up in the 90s sort of hit that sweet spot of the law having been in place and certain changes and fights within Congress being um, forcing it to actually yeah. matter in schools instead of being sort of this concept that everybody ignored and that the NCA actively worked against. Uh, which resulted in a lot of us being that generation that started a lot of the professional leagues and other things because it coincided with Olympics and World Cups and these moments of great American mm -hmm. triumph that primed a path for people to say, oh, I want more of that. What happens to all those women when they grow up? What do they do then? Well, it's over. They have nowhere to play. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's why there's that boon of professional. Yeah, we just spoke with Billie Jean King the other day um, on our podcast, and I think uh, one of the things that I learned, which is really cool and radical, is that when they were writing the law back in the 70s, early 70s, and talking to senators and talking to Congress folks um, about how they could, what words to use, right? The the word activities in in the mm. the the law uh, that is the word that changed the course of women's sports history in the United States, 100 percent. And when I was talking to Billie Jean King about it, she was mentioning that they didn't know what word to use. And they just thought, well, activities is kind of like a catch-all, right? Like that could be used for lots yeah. of things. Uh, not many people. Of yeah, not and many, and, Exactly. Not many yeah. people know that Title IX, the reason why they started it is so that women and, and um, you know, minority folks could become doctors and lawyers, right? Like mm. I think that that is the most profound thing because the way that so many of us think of title nine is that it's a sports law and it's not one word no. in the law actually can no. be attributed to sports, which has changed for me. It's thinking about 96, the Olympics in Atlanta, mm. thinking about all the women that were winning gold medals. Then that had to start 20, 25 years beforehand. It's, and it's not the law in 72. It's the work that the men and women um, did to get that law to pass, right? I think that that's one of the most, I think it's one of the most interesting things ever. That was supposed to just be for doctors and lawyers for education. And they just threw this one little word in. That's why words matter. So actually to go back to the beginning of this, my favorite word is activities. In the spirit mm, of title IX. I nine. love that. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, I'd like a word. What is your favorite word? Oh, my God. These are stumping questions. My favorite word, commencement. You know what? Let's actually do both. Let's start with commencement. So late 13th century, a beginning act or fact of coming into existence from the old French beginning or start and uh, started to mean a school graduation ceremony around 1850, originally just for colleges in reference to the ceremonies by which the members of the graduating class are made to be, begin to be bachelors or masters. Uh, And then it was extended to graduation ceremonies at other levels of schooling. And yes, the other word, activity, that magical word in Title IX that changed the face of sports forever. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So, activity. Circa 1400, active or secular life from Old French activité and from the medieval Latin. Uh, From Latin activus, meaning state of being active, briskness, liveliness, and recorded from the 1520s, and then uh, from the 1540s, it became capacity for acting on matter. Uh, 1923, as an educational exercise, activities in school. It is a great word. It's a word word that changed our lives. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is? The word of the week is theocracy. Started in the 1620s as an unlatinized theocrity. And then by 1737, theocracy, form of government in which God is recognized as supreme ruler and his laws form the statute book. So originally the government of Israel before the rise of kings and from the later Greek theokratia, literally the rule of God from theos for God and kratos for a rule, a regime, a strength. And then starting in 1825, also the meaning priestly or religious body wielding political and civil power. So in a sentence. Across multiple rulings in recent weeks, the Supreme Court's majority has made clear that they'd like America to be not a democracy, but a Christian theocracy. Hence, Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissenting opinion on one ruling that read in part, quote, this court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. That's what she said. Now let's get back to the interview. Um, yeah, it is super important um, because what it did was in just 37 words, open up every opportunity to women and girls that previously had been denied. And what it results in is exactly what you mentioned at Florida, which is all of a sudden they have to reconcile all of the investment they're putting into boys and men into girls and women. The only downfall to that is that you get used to private planes and then you go to these fresh, <laughs> new, nascent women's professional leagues and you don't even have a trainer yeah. or, you know, facilities. And so you're part of this 
story of women's professional soccer in the U.S. You know, you become a part of uh, the the WUSA, I think, was the first one. And then that folds five days before the 2003 World Cup. Then you're a part of yes. the WPS. That folds around early yep. 2012. Then we get the NWSL, which thank goodness we're, we're working on 10 years now <laughs> of NWSL. Um, but all of those different moments, I mean, we feel this now, you're part owner of Angel City, I'm part owner of Red Stars. Like we get players from massive programs and it's really sad for it to yep. be a step down, to come to a professional team and to say, oh, well, when I was there, we had this enormous locker room and crazy facilities and all these benefits. And so much of that is buoyed by the money brought in by something like college football. But how do you, how did you reconcile that, that moment of like, I'm going from private planes to helping start this brand new league that's got not yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, it's hard in, in a person's life to, to kind of make that adjustment. But I think that the bigger conversation here is the reframe of, okay, we, we got to think about these college programs, these big institutions that are getting massive amounts of funding from their sponsorships, their donors, right? When we talk about women's sports, there is money. It's not like there isn't money mm -hmm. in sports, okay? So when we talk about the whole of sports, there is money. It's just, we aren't getting enough of the pie, right? Like there, yeah. there are networks, there are streamers, there are situations and people who have real money that they want to invest. And, um, and you know, I'm done making the case for women's professional sports, that it can be profitable, that it can be popular. Because when you think about what, well, then why are the men's sports so popular? It's because they've had that initial investment. It's because they have had hundreds of years. Some of these leagues are over a hundred years old. Mm -hmm. And so when you are spending and investing in those specific communities, that return shows up at some point. Those same kind of investments are never given to women. Um, we aren't yeah. seen as the same kind of commodity in the business world, in the sports landscape. Uh, but I do, I, and I will say this, I do actually feel like that's starting to shift. Yes, there are a handful of female athletes that rise to the top that are making men, male kind of money. Um, you know, the Naomi Osaka's, the Serena Williams. Um, I would argue that, you know, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe are pushing themselves into that category. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why are they able to do this. And it's because they are getting the big money. They're getting the big companies to uh, sponsor them, to endorse them. Um, and, and then it puts them in a, a category of now becoming investors, which allows them access to doors right. that actually that's generational wealth money. Right. So, you know, right. how do we give more access to not just the top five women athletes in the world, but to the pros. And I love it when a younger player who's just come from a nice college experience comes into the pro team and is like, what the hell? We've got 15 passenger vans, you know? Right. And it's as an older player, you're like, you don't know what you've, you, you know, what we've had to go through, uh -huh. but that kind of entitlement is what makes change. So us old folks, yeah. 
you know, in some ways we need to just shut up and step aside and let the younger generation lead um, because they, they aren't riddled with all of the, the, the messages of misogyny and sexism that all of us have had and continue have to work just yeah. be grateful the conditioning that we don't deserve as much and aren't owed as much um that's changing and they're coming up in a space that's different and listening to them and pushing forward using that um lens is super important i think to your point um and i've talked about this on a lot of podcasts here there's any number of reasons it's it's legacy of a hundred year old it's ubiquitous it's put in your face on every billboard every channel every television show so you're constantly being told about men's sports whether you ask or not whereas women's are an mm -hmm. opt-in you have to go looking for it men's are you know you'd have to opt out of it to try not to have it constantly talked about around yeah. you you've got literal tax money tax dollars going to their stadiums yeah. you've got political people advocating on behalf of i mean there's endless reasons and we don't acknowledge this but thankfully there is now data that is out there that is proving what a good investment it is and also the the millions that are being lost for instance to your point by things like the ncaa not taking seriously the women's march madness tournament and then finding out later it's valued at about 60 plus million dollars a year and they're making like none of that because the the misogyny is so baked in that they can't even see the money right in front of their faces they're losing out on and i want to get back to when you started out because you went through those different iterations of a women's pro league and one of the things that's come up in conversation around the nwsl as there's been this reckoning of coaches and owners and people who are behaving badly is this idea of just be grateful for what you have and don't rock the boat because the league could go away and there have been two previous iterations of women's professional soccer that have gone away. So when we look across the NWSL landscape and you see now people being called out for bad behavior and actually being held accountable, being replaced, being fired, um, it means a lot that the league will pr press forward and be stronger and better for that. And that you really can't use that excuse anymore to tell people you should be afraid of speaking up because this thing that you make a living doing could be taken away any day. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that the um, the more permanent feeling that this league has gives players, I think, more ability. Because the truth is, we all live in specific times. And those times, in, I call them trends and forces. Those times, in many ways, dictates how much progress can actually be seen into the reality of life. Um, how much growth can really happen right now? Because I think about Billie Jean King back in the seventies, she might have been in eighties and nineties. She might've been feeling certain ways, but she knew that the culture was only ready for a certain amount of information right. for a certain amount of progress, so to speak. So when we talk about these leagues, you know, the NWSL and the WNBA, by the way, they're the leaders when it comes to so much social justice movement in the space of sport and even in politics. Cause for me, I think that the WNBA, um, won. Huge. Yeah. I think it won us the Senate, uh, years ago. And these are leagues that are established based on not just feminism and progress, but equality is, I think at the basis of and by the way, it's not perfect. None of these, none of these entities are perfect. We still have a lot of room to grow, but if you can find a way to create an entity, this is how I see business moving forward in the modern era. The best ones 
if you can find a way to have a group of people who are capable and allowed to disrupt, because essentially when, when a player comes to the league commissioner and says, Hey, I feel like I'm being mistreated. The league commissioner then has to open an investigation and figure out what's going on, right? You want to have an employee base that feels safe enough where they don't think that their job will be threatened if they bring something to the table, right? Now, there's a lot that goes in, into that. You got to trust that the commissioner is going to do their job and you got to trust that the investigation is going to be done and, and done by a third party. Like there's so many different factors to it. But I think what gives me hope is that, yeah, we are to be in the space of, of professional sports. You have to be in some ways an extraordinary person. You have to be extraordinary at a job that not many people can do, whether it's a player or a coach or a trainer. And so those expectations and standards are high, right? Like I have kind of like just like a no a-hole policy in terms of the people I yeah. spend time with. Like that's just my thing. But listen, as a pro athlete for many years, I had to deal with some a-holes in my life, whether it be yeah. um, owners and executives and teammates. Like I had to deal with, and by the way, I was probably an a-hole to some people. Like nobody's perfect. But at the end of the day, if you create a system and an environment where people feel safe and comfortable about bringing grievances forward, then we can get to some sort of middle, right? Like I don't envy the commissioner of any league because <laughs> there's a lot that goes on when you're dealing with high achievers, high level athletes. Um, but it does give me hope because, uh, it also makes me feel jealous that I didn't have the strength or the, or the capability at the time when I was an athlete, when I was a player to come forward with some of these grievances, I was just like, you know, rub some dirt on it, Abby, like just, just deal with it. Like this right. is the only way in order to well, make you talk about that when, yeah, when some of this stuff came out, you posted about feeling like you had played for and worked alongside men who were abusive and you, you didn't feel like you either had the power or the desire to speak up about it at the time. And now you regret that. I mean, I think what you're getting at with trends and forces is how in a moment you can behave in a way that feels right. And then years later, look back and say, shoot, I, I could have done a lot more. I should have done, I should have said more. Um, and it's hard to reconcile that because in, in later years, it feels, in, it, it feels um, obvious, but in the moment yeah. maybe doesn't. It's, uh, it's yeah. probably one of the things that I struggle with the most in my retirement is how little I, how, how, how less conscious I feel like I was, um, you know, I think I was in the business of men and I wanted to be seen like as one of the guys, because that's the only form of leadership that I ever saw that worked, you know, like I wanted to be included in those rooms, to be given a seat at certain tables. And, and I wasn't at the time, maybe mature enough to understand that not just that I didn't, I wasn't necessarily in my full integrity, but there was a time in my career that I had to do that. I had to play the game, you know, like, I mean, you're in a, such a male dominated world, Sarah, that, and it's not like mm -hmm. we, we, step so far out of line in our integrity that we can't even recognize ourselves. It's like 
there are things that women, a long list of women who have had to make sacrifices for where we were at certain times during certain eras, during this whole women's movement. And what, what we did 10 years right. ago feels like cringy. Like how did they, you know, agree right. to do this? Why would they agree to do this? And it's like, at the time it was the information we had and we did the best that we could. And yes, there, right. there was, and there are so many circumstances in my life that because of my gayness, because of the way that, I, that, um, I'm, I, I, I present more masculine, you know, a lot of men feel more comfortable around me. Um, and so I think that I was probably a little bit too naive at the time that I played a little bit of that, that game. And it was ironic yeah. because in the end of my career, I didn't see any of the male kind of money long-term that was going to affect the rest of my life. So I was wrong, right? Like, I think I saddled myself to the wrong team for a period of my life. Um, and that's okay. Like I learned that those hard lessons and understand that, okay, you know, you only know what you know when you know it. And, uh, and so I, yeah, the worst thing is not to evolve, yes. not to grow and not to learn more. I mean, I think you and I've talked about this before proximity to power. Yep. It is very difficult to understand and have the bravery to step away from the things that we've been conditioned to believe are most important, are most valuable, are most likely to drive success. And so particularly being athletes and being in the sports world, I absolutely look back at more like 15 years ago, but like the bullshit that I did where I had to wear like jerseys with a ton of cleavage and my boobs pushed up to my chin and be like, Hey boys, here's the fantasy football news of the day. Like, it's like the yeah. worst cringiest thing that is so not me in any way. And guess what? I do not think I would be having this conversation with you and work for ESPN that's if right. I hadn't done that bullshit, because that's how the people in power find you, see you, think with whatever head they're thinking with, decide to give you a chance, and then you start getting small jobs and eventually you make your way to the big good jobs like ESPN. But you have to start somewhere. And unfortunately, if all the decision makers are still yes. men and they still have antiquated ideas of who's watching and, and looking for the content, they're going to hire based on that. Yes. And it sucks. And it sucks when people find a photo of me from 15 years ago. They're like, oh, real feminist. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what to tell you about hating the player uh, instead of hating the game, hate the game that made me do That's that. Right. Bullshit. Yes. I just think that every single one of us, we look in the mirror every day and we can't control all of the messages that we are taught that we are inadvertently in, in contact with, with social media, like who we're watching on television and what are they wearing and how are they doing their eyelashes and how are they doing their hair? You know, in the late nineties and early two thousands, I had a ponytail, you know, like I had short hair. I buzzed my hair in college, but I was very aware that the corporate world didn't really hire gay people. Right. And so, right. And I also had to feel like myself on some level. So there are so many photo shoots of me and my younger self with long hair, <laughs> with makeup on, with like, with mascara. I looked ridiculous. I, I looked nothing like myself. And that might be good for you, Sarah. Like when we look in the mirror, all of us see a projection of, you know, we see ourselves, but then we see this projection of what we should be. 
right? And 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 right. when you're talking about income, when I'm talking about paying my freaking bills and that I have to step into a kind of persona to play certain games. I mean, everybody's doing it and, and it's not it's not right. mischievous or out of like a negative heart, like trying to get like get some something over. It's just trying to survive. It's trying to get like food right. on my table and make sure that I'm doing things and trying to do it in the best way possible. But there are things in life and there were things in my professional existence that I'm not proud of. Right. And, um, decisions, like when you're trying to make big decisions for big groups of people, you're not going to get it right all the time. And not everybody is mm -hmm. going to be happy. It's just like, you're always just trying to do your very best with all of the information you have at the time. And so I hate it when people go back yeah. and, you know, try to pinpoint certain things that I've said that don't line up with who I am now. And I'm like, look, like I'm a person, I'm not perfect and I'm evolving. I'm right. like growing right the second. So I'm hoping in 10 years, what we talk about in this podcast that I'm like, oh my gosh, Sarah, can we believe that we talked about that? that <laughs> I want to get back to what you were saying about, cause that famous story of you being honored alongside Kobe and Peyton at the ESPYs, being so excited to be included alongside these two guys and then stepping off the stage and realizing, oh shit, I got to find a whole new career and make something else of myself because I'm not in the same position as they are with buckets of money and, and the world at my feet. I want to know what happened right after that, because it makes for a good story when you turn it into eventually build your own table, found Angel City, become an owner, meet Glennon, change the world. But in that moment, I don't know how long it was, months, years after that ESPYs moment where you're looking around and saying, who am I now without soccer? What am I going to do? What did that look like? Yeah. So uh, ironically, I was working uh, with ESPN at the time I was commentating the Euros in 2016 in France. And I flew back, um, I think for the ESPYs and um, I was on stage. The three of us get the icon award, all three, myself, Kobe, and may he rest in peace. And Peyton, we were, we're all retired in the same year. And I just remember getting that first call from, uh, from the producer of the ESPYs and, and her telling me, that this was going to happen. And I was just astonished. Like, wow, we women, we are, we have finally made it. Like, this is, this is what <laughs> I've been working towards my whole life to be seen and on the same stage and getting the same award as these guys. Well, when the lights turned off, we got our awards and the three of us turned to walk off stage. Um, you know, I was supposed to go celebrate and party with my friends and family. Like that, that was the plan. But I didn't. I got into my uh, car and I told the driver to take me back to the hotel because for whatever reason, I had yet to figure this out, but I was so angry. You know, I was fuming. I was I was like inconsolable. And I, I went back to the hotel and I had like one of those Jerry Maguire kind of moments where I was like, I was like having an existential crisis. Like my whole career is over what the hell now do I have to show for it? I've won some gold medals. I've done some really cool stuff, but I don't know what the hell I'm going to do for a living. Like I said, I was commentating with ESPN on men's soccer and, and I was horrible. I was, I was, I was beyond horrible. I was, I was the worst person there, <laughs> you know, and, and nobody gave me 
and you know, this is not a, a slight to ESPN. I didn't, I didn't prep like I needed to. I didn't get like the right. coaching that I needed at the time. I wasn't in a perfect, great place in my life to begin with. So that night in the hotel room, I decided two things. Number one, that no other woman coming after me on the national team would share this experience that they would have been able to make more money and be able to maybe hopefully live on it for the rest of their lives. And then number two, more importantly, like this is every woman's story because I think what I had been doing my whole career was only comparing myself to other women. Like that's what they do. They give us blinders or something like, Oh no, like we should never expect to make Kobe and Peyton money. Like stay in your lane, Abby, like, compare yourself to the other women around you. And by that comparison, I was doing better than most. So what could I complain about? Right? So I promised myself that because I knew that this wasn't only my problem, that this is a, a, a worldwide women's problem, that in every industry, every woman is having the same moment, the same conversation, um, that I was going to do and work the rest of my life and tell that story. Because so many people don't understand. Yeah. They're like, oh, women's national soccer players, they, they make millions of dollars. And it's like, actually, that's not mm -hmm. true, number one. And number two, that won't last a person's entire life. Remember, I retired at 35 years old. Like, I, I, I didn't have enough money to do nothing. Um, and so I just think it's important. And it, and it sent me off into the direction of my new life, which is... I think been such a beautiful exploration in trying to uncover some of the mistakes I made in my career, trying to figure out really what feminism and sexism and homophobia and, and racism and all of this stuff that like lives inside of me that, um, yeah. that I have never really tried to unearth and, and pull up and look at and be like, what do you mean to me? How did I learn you? Cause all of this shit we're talking about, Sarah, is stuff that we have been taught. We are taught to hate right. women. We are taught to hate black and brown people, right? Us white folks. Like the world that we live in is something that we stepped into. And so you, we all take on some of these, um, these isms, so to speak. And I don't know, I just, I think it's been such a wonderful retirement for me stepping into a more activism role, with women's rights and, <clears throat> you know, yeah. meeting Glennon was obviously a game changer. I met her right in and around this ESPYs time. Um, and so we've just kind of been having fun and, and also doing a lot of personal work because that's where this all, this is, this is where it all starts. Not enough people try to figure out what their place in all of this is. Everybody is just thinking, well, that person's homophobic and that person's racist and that person's sex sexist. It's like, you actually have to figure that out for yourself. Like I have had to figure out where misogyny lives inside of me and surprising okay. to maybe your listener where homophobia lives inside of me and what, what that does okay. to me and what that has done to my psych psyche and my, my personal peace and, and all of those things I've been trying to figure out. So been an interesting retirement and I still haven't made uh, enough money to be able to retire yet, but I'm working. I don't want you to, because I need the podcast to carry on. And, and that's a perfect transition because um, 
I've been talking about your podcast with Glennon and her sister a lot lately, in part just because there's such an intentionality to it, to naming things, exploring things, being honest about things. And part of the ways I choose guests for my podcast are just things that I'm curious about and want to know more about and want to devote some time to. And my job is so busy that if I can make my job something that I want to learn more about, it gives me that excuse to read that book or have that conversation. And I talk about your podcast in the sense of how many people move through the world tackling just whatever's right in front of them and maybe a few big picture things. When will I retire? Do I have enough money for this? What vacation do I want to do next year? But most of it is what's right in front of me. And they don't either have the luxury and privilege of time to spend exploring and, and being introspective, or they don't choose to because they fear what they might discover about themselves or their friends or their life if they think too hard about whether they're happy or satisfied or accomplished or moral or good or kind or any of these things. And your podcast tackles so many issues across that. And I love the story specifically for you because I identify so much with both you mm. and Glennon. You and I are the sporty, spent our whole lives, proximity to power, man's world, used to say dumb shit. Like, well, most of yeah. my friends are guys. I just get a lot better <laughs> with guys. Um, just like of awful, Basically, awful I shit like women. that. And then, yeah, I, I never hated women. We I always saying. had a lot of we were friends that were women. Assimilate. But I would just be like, I would just say that because I yes. thought it made me cooler to be like, yes. oh, I'm one of the guys. Yes. I'm more like a guy assigning qualities and characteristics to men that are extremely female as well, but we had just been told yes. that they weren't as acceptable. I used to literally say all the time, especially when I was single, I would be the best catch if I were a dude. And all that to say that then also in the later parts of my life, I'm Glennon. I'm like, I want to read every book about human behavior and psychology. I want to understand why we do things. I want to learn. I want to talk to people. I want to, I want to like use every conversation I have to like keep learning and, and understanding human beings and why we are the way we are. And so to see you have this pivot yeah. point of, okay, I'm not an athlete anymore. What's my identity? Yeah. I'm going to have a moment with the DUI and the drinking and the stuff that you have to reconcile. You're going to have a pivot point of who am I and what am I going to do next? And then you're going to run right into a, at the time, self, you know, not self-described, but everybody else described Christian mommy blogger. So good. Who is going to like... <laughs> completely change your trajectory and it's so fun to watch and it's so fun to hear yeah. you unpack all the shit from the first half of life to the second but i heard you say recently you've enjoyed post soccer post retirement life and the choices that you've made more than all those years of being like one of yeah. the world's best ever that's wild yeah i'm 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 as happy as i've ever been and you know I've had a lot of time to kind of digest and analyze and, and process being a professional athlete. And I do it. I, I mean, I'm constantly still doing it because whether it doesn't matter how good you are or how long you played pro sports has a trauma effect to the human, just somebody's humanity. Um, you know, I was on the road all the time. I missed a lot of family events. Um, my body was always in, in some sort of fight or flight, literally. So my, my central nervous system was all kinds of jacked up. Um, my body itself, like the injuries that I, I took on the psychology on what my body is supposed to look like, the psychology on how my body is supposed to move, how it's supposed to feel. Um, and then when you bring the fame element into it, it brings a complete 
it it brings a uh, a disillusionment to what real life is, right? And so when Glennon and I met, it, it was like complete opposite human beings, right? Like I had just gotten sober. I got the DUI. The DUI gave me a, a year runway of of forcing me into sobriety because I was going into a diversion program based on um, you know the legal system, uh, and and that time in my life was really important because, and I don't know. I was just talking to Glennon about this the other day. I spent most of my childhood in kind of like a famous bubble because in Rochester, people knew who I was in high school. Um, and Mm -hmm. it does something to you. And I always was really rebelling. I was very rebellious against the fame part of that. I wanted to be myself. I think that that probably what is what engaged the drinking. I wanted my friends to think that I was normal and that I could hang and all of those things. So when Glennon and I met, it was kind of this, this perfect storm of, um, her kind of leaving this being a good girl you know, in the perfect family model, three kids, husband. And I was leaving this fame world of soccer, of sport, uh, of drinking, of alcoholism. And we just kind of, we kind of ran into each other. And both of us, you know, we laugh because I'm still in evolve. I'm still evolving. Right. And Glennon is always very, she's a philosopher by nature. She's reading. She's always current. Like she is five years down the road from where I'm always at. Like, I'm always like, wait, tell me more. Like, why is that? You know? Yeah. That's why Untamed was so big because all of us were reading. We're like, how did I not see that that's what's been happening or hear that or, or digest that in that way. And then once she says it, now you can't unknow it or unsee it that way. And you're ready to move forward completely differently. You're so lucky you just have that I in know. your house all the it's time. It's lucky it's and useful. also really f-ing annoying because you know, I'm sure and very hard. Yes. Like, I'm not there yet. I'm like, Give me you a know, look. I, I mean, talk about and also our kids are 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 as smart as Glennon. I'm like the the dumbest one in the whole of my family and slower <laughs> than everybody else, and that's fine because like I keep everybody like grounded in some way. But like, yeah, talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. you know being the oldest like being the parent and your kids are like, I don't think we say that anymore. I'm like, okay, can you tell me more? <laughs> can you tell me why? Like keep giving, keep giving so me this information. And I think, yeah. I think that's why Glennon and I work so, so well, because as even though I know all of that, we're, what we're talking about is very serious shit and really important stuff that needs to be worked through. I will never in my life say that I'm like a finished book. I'm like a done deal. Right. And never will Glennon. And we all have our own roads to take, you know, and I'm committed to, to, to this road. I'm committed to, to keep learning. And I also understand how frustrating it is to not understand something that feels so easy to like a Glennon in some ways. Um, I kind (laughs) of talk about the way that she processed through her work, her thoughts. Like I'm like that, guinea pig she'll she'll test the thought out of me and i'm like i i don't know that doesn't make any sense and she's like good i'm on to something another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned this earlier and you, and you reminded me of again, when you said Glennon's five years ahead, um, you talked about trends and forces. Megan Rapinoe was on your podcast with Sue Bird, one of your cute double date episodes. And she said something that stuck with me and it's not different than anything I've heard before. She just used different words. She said she just wants to live in the future and make everyone mm-hmm. else catch up that she wants to put herself into a space where it's already okay for female athletes to have swagger and be fierce and be outspoken and be paid enough and be treated a different way. And like all these things that she wants to see, instead of waiting for everybody else to get there, she's just gonna start being there. And when people say the world isn't ready or sponsors or audiences, whatever, just tell them to catch up. And it's a weird concept, but this idea of just choosing to live in the future is one I've always tried to talk about in terms of spaces in which people work. I say, it's great to like come to an ESPNW summit and have everyone be on the same page. But if you go back to an office and your boss does not believe in that stuff, you're gonna run up against that wall every time. Or you have an HR department who won't act on something that you complain about. You're gonna, what happens then, right? So these ideas are great in the right spaces, but then you try to evolve the rest of the world and you're like, oh. And so I I think that's one of the fascinating things about listening to you and Glennon and your guests is um, because of Glennon's forethought and because of the way she sees things, it allows people to explore what it would be like to live in a, in 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 the future where and and then it sucks when you like leave those spaces and go back to everywhere else and you're like listen practically speaking there's still people who just write kitchen under every single women's sports let me give you let me give you a brief story on the practicality of this because this happens in my house on like a weekly basis so i'm a professional speaker um i have a speaking agency and they email me with offers right And I discuss everything in my life with Glennon. So I go to Glennon and I say, do you see this offer? And Glennon is five years down the road. Okay. And she (laughs) is, she's like, no, like that, that's not what you're worth. You're worth this. And my experience in, in, in sport, right. Is just to take whatever you've got. So I have been, and what happens is, I get riddled with this fear that if I don't say yes to this, it's all going to go away. I will never get another offer Uh in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And so she just said to me one day, she said, I am going to give you an exercise that maybe you want to do. Maybe you don't just say no to a couple and see what happens. And so I said no to a couple of offers that were lower than what I wanted. And wouldn't you know, The next week, the offers came in higher. And I was like, (laughs) 
So you're telling me all this time, all I needed to say was no. She said, yes, because when you say yes, you're also saying no to a future self in some ways. And I think like, it's just been so mind blowing. And, and obviously there's a balance, right? Like you can't say, no, I want right. a bazillion dollars. Like, a, you know, right. like there's a balance and trying to manage those is part of what makes life so confusing at times. But the idea of, of actually sitting with figuring out what you feel like you're worth and then honoring yourself right. with decisions and not letting, not letting yeah. an offer come in and start playing and, and affecting what you think your own worth is. Um, it, it's just right. been completely like, well, that's, it's tied to all of the things we've talked about on this podcast, because what happens is not only do you undersell your worth compared to men, but then you also carry all of the expectations for women to not be overly ambitious, to not take up too much space, to not yes. ask for too much. I'm constantly trying to figure this out. I've been at ESPN for 12 years and occasionally I get treated by young newish people like mm. I just got here. And in my head, I always go, what if like Stephen A. Smith, and I'm not putting myself on the same place as him, but what if some guy who's been working in radio at ESPN for this long or is on TV for his, what if they asked for something, would they get the same response that mm. I'm getting right now? And it's that balance of, I can't just decide to demand more and act differently and, and put the kind of weight into rooms that those guys do, because as a woman, it will not sure. be received the same way. So how do I balance wanting to live in the future where a strong, ambitious, outspoken woman who asks for what she wants and demands what she deserves is well-received with the reality of take that into a space and see yep. how people now see you. I love, a, I love this question. Cause this is, this is what I struggle with now, even in, in my current life every single day. I'm like, you know, thinking about, um, offers and thinking about different speaking events that I want to do. And at the end of the day, one of the things that talking to Billie Jean King recently really that stuck with me is yes, you are going to make some money here, right? Like, but more importantly, you're going to lay some groundwork for that person who's mm -hmm. going to come into the door after you. And so though you might not necessarily get everything that you need now, you have to show up with the right attitude, right? That you're only going to let, you're not going to let somebody degrade you or disrespect you. Um, right. And to kind of create a path for that next generation in some ways. But then Sarah, I'm also like, yeah, yeah but I want to get paid. Like I'm, I'm worth something yeah. too. So finding that balance. Right. And I don't believe that women have to spend any of their time doing any women's work or women's rights work for the betterment of the world. That's just what I'm choosing to do. Cause I also think that that's a trope like, Oh, women, we have to just right. stick together. Yeah. We've talked about this during our Gatorade uh, women's sports advisory board is like, there's that guilt of like, I would do this for free, but when a company expects me to do it for free while paying males to do that work, what they're saying is it's on us to make our right. lives better. The marginalized then have to take on all the work of, of equality instead of the people <sighs> that are already in power who are going to then get paid and, and patted on yes. the back for showing up. 
which is why like in my head i'm not i'm not super driven by money i i love it it's great trust me but i do a lot of stuff for free but in those moments where i'm doing something that i know somebody else is getting paid a shit ton for or getting valued differently that's when you have to like you said take a stand because now you're creating a pattern for everyone that comes after you well abby did it for free so now we don't feel and like we need they'll to they'll use that, right? Like they'll, they will always say to somebody, well, so-and-so is doing it, but they're doing it, you know, for free or whatever. Like we're going to donate yeah. money. Like the, the, that's the other thing that I get all the time. Yeah. We'll donate money to a charity of your choice. And I'm like, do you do this with guys? Come on. Like, yeah. no, yeah. The, the guys don't need to do this. So when they do do it, <laughs> yeah. it's because they're opting in for a reason, you know? for money right which is again it reminds me of the conversation i just had with julie foudy when we talked about the equal pay not a single guy from the men's team showed up to a single virtual or in-person negotiation for their own cba because they never had to fight for anything it was just given to them and one of them actually said that yeah i guess it was just more important for them to show up because they're fighting for stuff we've already had and then you're like wait a minute hold on again we we come back to this idea of like women you should want to show up and self-promote because you need more publicity and it brings great you know attention to your team or your league or yourself and you're like and you should pay me because i'm not getting that publicity and money you're paying the people who are already rich and ubiquitous and everywhere mm -hmm. and then expecting us to do it out of the goodness of our heart but there's a balance there because i actually believe that too i'm like i will show up for women's sports stuff or underserved communities and i will do it for free because it matters to me but it's like flipped on its head from the way it should be. Yeah. I hate that story. You know, like, yeah, I understand <laughs> in the business world, like it's like a doggy dog world, but it just is, it's just so upsetting. You know, like part of me thinks that, you know, those guys don't show up because they're making millions of dollars in their club contracts. And this is just like, no. this is a side gig. This is their side hustle, you know? Yeah that if they do since they've qualified right for the world cup they're going to get they're going to get a bigger chunk this next cycle so good job boys um and like we want them to succeed we want them to succeed we want them to win a world cup because guess what that does to the overall business of u.s soccer federation mm -hmm. it grows it yeah um we sh we yeah. show up and i think that that will always be the case. I think that um, there definitely needs to be, I think some some sort of bonding between the men and women's team. Um, yeah. I think it'll be better now with this new deal because maybe. they're gonna be wanting each other to succeed now because of shared revenue and other things. Like if 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 they do well, the other does well. Let me tell you a quick story. So Freddie Adu years ago, um, this is when I was playing at the Washington Freedom in the WUSA way, way back when. Fred Adu, former soccer player, he um, he was very jealous at the time of our women's soccer contract. And at the time, I think he he just signed like a huge Pepsi deal and signed a big, big deal with Benfica. I don't know exactly where he was in the world. And I said, Freddie, I tell you what we'll do. You can have my women's soccer contract and I'll take your club contract. And he was just like, Oh, no, 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 no. Like he was like upset because he felt like our contracts were better. And I'm like, no, our contracts are just on a yearly basis. They're not better. And also you have this huge million dollar club contract. Like, right. come on, dude. Anyways, I digress. 
Yeah. I want to ask you something quickly because we're running out of time. And I was listening to a podcast and you were talking about how because you've been gay longer yeah. than Glennon, you've spent your whole life being knowing you were gay and, and eventually coming out and living that way, that she alerts you to things that you don't even know because she had so much of her life with what we would call mm -hmm. like straight privilege. And I was listening to that and it reminded me of me and my husband because when I met my husband, he was truly more of a feminist than I was because I had been in so many spaces my whole life that were predominantly male or just in women's sports, you get so used to having less than and being treated less than that you internalize that as just mm -hmm. like, oh, that's just the way it goes, right? Of course the football team's more important or of course this gets more money. Then I start working in sports and I'm in a room of three women and 48 dudes and I'm just happy to be there. And I'm like, okay, pick your battles. And I would tell stories of stuff and he would be like, that's not okay. I'm like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. He's, mm -hmm. it is a big deal. You're the only woman who works at that radio station. And if you're the only one that doesn't get invited to this or included in this, that's wrong. And I'm like, you're right. That is wrong. But I was thinking about how sometimes the people who are on the outside looking in have to be the ones to tap us and say, hey, are you not aware of what's happening here? And I wonder how that's worked for you and Glennon. I think that interview was a year or maybe two ago how that's continued for you, that back and forth of teaching each other, you're teaching her the stuff she doesn't know from being relatively yeah. new to the queer community. And she's teaching you all the things that she got to spend the first, you know, 40 years of her life. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that she about. came into our, our relationship with straight privilege. So we were actually at a bank one day uh, and they slid some paperwork over for us to sign. And on one side of the a column, it said husband and the other side of the column, it said wife. So you Rochambeau and, and Glennon just like, <laughs> she like threw the papers back to them. She's like, this is not right. And I was wow. like, kind of, I had like this embarrassed feeling like, don't make a big deal, you know, cause for the whole of my life, I've been trying to not make a big deal of things because it affected, it could affect my actual safety. Right. So, right. so many of us who live in the marginalized communities understand this moment where whether it's white supremacy or sexism or misogyny, like, yeah, a man hitting yeah. on you on the train is going to be like, giggle, yeah, giggle, giggle, and oh, wiggle, no right? thanks. Because like, you might literally get murdered if you say, exactly. Go away. So these interested. are the moments where we got back into the car and I now approach some of the stuff with mostly with curiosity instead of like self-judgment, because at the end of the day, I knew she was right, but also I was pissed because how does I'm like a gay rights activist. How did this new kid on the block <laughs> have, have more power than me? And so we, we kind of dissect it. We, we figured out and she's like, look, like I'm not going to take on the woe was me gay mentality of just assimilating into straight spaces. Like I'm going to require straight spaces to change around me. And I, so appreciate that because that's exactly the way that I want to be. Like, that's my best self talking. Like that's what I, right. but I have to mm -hmm. keep working on the conditioning that's taken place over the whole of my life. And I can't erase right. the way that I've been raised or the, the, the places that I've been or the things that I've seen or the things that I've heard. What I can do is recognize right. it and say, okay, we're in a different time. 
I can approach these situations a yeah. little bit differently. So it's just so great because Glennon's like, that doesn't sound right. Or that, that sounds a little right. homophobic or that's a little sexist or, you know, like even walking down the street and like grabbing her hand, I have to talk myself into it. I have to survey yeah. the scene. Like, where are we? Are we in a safe place? Uh, and I'm like, oh yeah, like we live in California now. It's okay. Cause we just came from Naples, Florida right. and it wasn't always that, yeah. that great. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a gift for those who are coming out now. I have a friend who came out in her early forties as well. And it's such a different experience. And she recognizes that she's not carrying all the stuff of growing up and trying to figure it out. She just gets to be someone who's queer totally. in 2022, which is a very different experience than way back when. All right, we're out of time. But before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. That's what she said. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current careers are canceled. What job do you do instead? Um, shit. Uh, actually, I just like being a parent. Like that's the job that I want to do forever. Okay, yeah. good. Full time parent. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, in jail, night of the DUI. Yeah, yeah. Number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? <laughs> oh God, this is good. I mean, you've already done yeah, it for many years at soccer. I, I so now something else. Yeah, surfing. Oh, that'd be amazing. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? I don't do that game. This game's that I, I don't like that. I, I don't care about celebrities. Like, I just want to be around good people. But I mean, is there someone that you just see out and you're like, oh, that person seems so awesome? No, I think people, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, all the people... You just yeah, invite just, them on your podcast have, and then they become your friend. We have on some level. So like if you're interested, we just have them yeah. on. So just listen to the podcast and you'll see who I'm interested in. Okay. Well, can you then reach out to Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Stephen Colbert, and Mindy Kaling and then become friends with them yes, and then invite me over? Sure. Okay. That's Amy just Poehler a short list. Amazing. Michelle and We're Barack friends. also on there. There's any number that <laughs> I would like to throw out there, but those are a couple that come to the top of my mind. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Um... I guess it's the sink thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's right now. It's really thing. top of mind. Yeah. I give it to you. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Huh. I got my period playing in the SEC championship game one of the years in college, and oh. it was on television. Oh, yeah. You could see it? One of my teammates, she ran right by <gasps> me. She looked over, and she's no. like, honey, you got to change your shorts. And I was like, Shit. No. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to, to improve? Yeah. I'm just working on self-love right now. And uh, I'm I'm actually doing a good job at it. I like really loving myself. Good, 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 good. good. Uh, eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Any Who musician, is it? Um, Right now, Brandy Carlisle. Yeah, she's crushing it. Plus, then you get to hang out with her, and she's cool as hell. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? That DUI, for sure. But best thing that ever happened to me. Number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe Fun, you? loyal, and uh, energetic. Awesome. 
and not punctual because I kept you late. Bye. Love you. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. First, a reminder that if you're listening to this in the moment on the day it came out, that means Tuesday, uh, June 28th. Then the second half of that 37 Words documentary airs tonight on ESPN, 8 p.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Eastern, parts three and four of the 37 Words documentary. So for starters, check that out. And I want you to listen to Fresh Air Podcast 5309 from Thursday, titled Where the Anti-Abortion Movement is Heading. I want you to listen to Friday's Roe is Dead, Now What? Strict Scrutiny Podcast. Strict Scrutiny is part of the uh, Crooked Media Group. I want you to read the New Yorker story, A Texas Teenager's Abortion Odyssey from June 13th of 2022 by Stefania Taladrid. So again, it's a Fresh Air Podcast, 5309. It's a strict scrutiny podcast called Roe is Dead, Now What? And it's a New Yorker story, a Texas teenager's abortion odyssey. I want you to educate yourselves, arm yourselves with truth, get ready to fight. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got guest suggestions, questions, dilemmas, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please, and give us a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.